Welcome back to another episode of Secrets of a Serial Killer. I'm your host, Nick, and I am so sorry that I'm a day late and a dollar short, but I'm going to get into this story. I'm going to get back to doing two people, but yeah, it's been really hard. Life's been crazy. So we're going to be talking about the outdoor sniper, Thomas Dillon. So he was born in Canton, Ohio in 1950. So the spring of 1952, his father was diagnosed with cancer, but Thomas was way too young to remember any of that. And then he eventually passed away. His mother became a single parent of three. So the mid-1960s, her health declined as well. She was sent to a nursing home. Damn, how old was she? Damn. He told a psychiatrist by the name of Jeffrey Smalden that he never felt warmth of spontaneous affection. But his mother also didn't punish him. So he was pretty much like a ghost. She didn't care. So Thomas started daydreaming about what he can do to earn love. He created himself a fantasy bond. He'd fantasize about being a rock star, to being the president of the United States, so on and so forth. But the negative effects of this fantasy bond is forming real relationships later on in life. He didn't get good grades at school, even though they thought he was smart. He would skip class, and since he was absent so much, people saw him as a loner. But he didn't want to connect with others anyways. But he loved hunting. He fired so many practice shots that it damaged his hearing. But he was also a mediocre shooter. But he shot a groundhog one time and he finished it off with slitting his throat. He got a rush from it and the hit came and it made him shake with energy. He also had a calendar for all the animals that he killed. But he also had a second calendar and he wrote all the names of the girls that he had sex with. What a fuck boy. He drove around shooting out windows, and he just got away with it. Well, he eventually graduated in 1969 with the college offer from Kent State University Shark Campus, and he studied there for a short period of time before he transferred over to Ohio State University. He majored in journalism. Well, he was still distanced from his peers. His classmates heard that he was shooting out windows, but they didn't believe it. He had a huge gun collection, and he bragged about his skills, even though he was mediocre. But he loved learning about serial killers and shared some gruesome hunting stories with anyone who would listen. Yeah, I like serial killers, and I mean, I've had some gruesome hunting stories as well, but I'm not a serial killer that I know of. But in the eyes of the public, he seemed too normal to be dangerous. He loved that people would doubt him, so he could go under the radar. Smart guy. He graduated in 1972. Hey, that's the year my dad was born. And he ended up moving back to Canton to work for a water department. He met Catherine L. Sass, and they married in 1978, then had a son. All of this happened at the age of 30. But then he drifted into a fantasy world, and he took out all his frustrations on his family. He'd beat his wife and talk down on his son. And nobody, not his neighbors, not his family... Co-workers, nobody had a clue that this was going on. Not too long after his wedding, he was visiting sex workers. Damn, dude. Imagine getting married and then just turning around and your husband's going out and sleeping with sex workers. That's horrible. But that didn't even fulfill him. On weekends, he would hop in his truck and go cruising through the state. He imagined himself as the pitcher for the Cleveland Indians. And then he was a soldier who saved his battalion. Hey, nothing wrong with that. And then a famous scientist who... Cured cancer. Hey, I'll back that 100% if that's what he does. But nope, in reality, he was a drunk. 
When he got the urge, he would stop, get out, and shoot stop signs or windows, vandalizing buildings and cars. Eventually, he started setting fires, and then he got back to his normal life. Every time he pulled into his driveway, he felt more and more frustrated. So in 1980, he joined the police training. The position was for private security. The training was feeding his ego. He passed it, and he marked the 500 death animal on his calendar. In his mid-30s, he shot at cats, dogs, and even people's pets. Seems like he was killing animals for a long time, but now he's very open about it. He shot his neighbor's pet. The man complained to the police, saying that Thomas shot his dog. But nothing happened. So an old college buddy, <laughs> remember this guy, who was also a gun enthusiast named Richard, had a horror story about Thomas in college. They were driving one time near some farmland, and Thomas stopped, leaned out of his window with the gun, and started shooting. His friend asked him what he was doing, and he was shooting at the farmer, and his friend yelled at him, Stop! Thomas got back in, and he laughed, saying his pistol wouldn't reach that far, and he was only having fun. So Saturday, April 1st, 1989, he loaded his truck up with guns and beer, and he was driving 30 miles from his home, and he pulled onto Route 94 and he saw a jogger, which was 35-year-old Donald Welding. The sight of him pissed Thomas off. So he pulled up next to Donald, aimed his gun at his chest, and he shot him right in his heart. He fell to the ground. Thomas drank the beer and continued to drive. Within seconds, that incident was no longer in his mind. He didn't care. Jeffrey, the psychiatrist that we talked about earlier, believed that Thomas was highly narcissistic. He thinks he has grandioism narcissism. When the body was found, Thomas was long gone and the locals were shocked. There wasn't a lot of crime in the area, especially murder. No fingerprints, no gun casings, witnesses. It was a dead end. The next year and a half, he went back to his normal life. So November 1990, nine months after his first murder, he was drunk driving along Route 64, when he noticed there was a hunter coming out of the woods, Thomas pulled over and he grabbed his rifle. He quickly moved around the bed of his truck, and then he lined up his sights with the boy who was named Jamie Paxton. So a few seconds, he took in some deep breaths, and then he squeezed the trigger. The first round hit him right in the chest, and he fell. Two more rounds went off. One hit him in the knee, and the other in his backside. Once Jamie was dead... Thomas grabbed the casings, got back into his truck, and left. Hunting accidents happen a lot, but the police knew this was a murder. Also, it was bow season, so it wouldn't have been a bullet. It would have been an arrow if it was an accident. Also, there wasn't, you know, would have been three. But there was still no evidence. They asked his friends and family about him, and like, did he have any haters? But Jamie was very beloved and popular. Everyone was shocked, but most of all, his mother was the one that was shocked the most. She wrote letters to her son's killer and asked the newspapers to print it. She talked crap to him and challenged him to reveal who he was. Thomas read the letters but didn't care. So November 28, 1990, 18 days later after Jamie's murder, he was driving 85 miles southwest of Canton. Thomas spotted a, name, a guy named Kevin. So... He was in an old strip mining area. Kevin ate lunch with his friends, and he just decided to go his separate ways from them while he was going hunting. 
So he was walking through a meadow. Thomas pulled over, lined up his shot, and hit Kevin right in the head. He died immediately. Thomas grinned, grabbed his casings, and got back into his truck. Kevin's murder was ruled as an accident due to it being gun season now. For more of a chance of a gunman hitting him at distance in gun season than a bow. What the fuck? So they just thought, oh, well, just because this guy got shot in the head and it's gun season. Yeah, it's not a murder. Like, what? Even if it was an accident, why didn't they call 911? That doesn't seem suspicious to y'all. Whatever. Whatever. So, Thomas wanted to know more about his victim. So, since there was no mentions about Kevin's death in the papers... He decided to drive all the way to Kevin's hometown of Duxbury, Massachusetts. Remind y'all, he's in Ohio, he's driving to Massachusetts. That's pretty far. He visited a library to look up everything about his victim. He would go as far as standing over the headstone of his victim, knowing that he put him there. Oh, that's fucked up. It gave him a rush. Mm. It put off his killing spree for two years, even though he continued to be destructive. So August 1991, a game warden caught him for illegal target practice in the state hunting area. He called police and they searched his car and they found an illegal silencer. See, target shooting was a misdemeanor, but since he had the silencer, not so much. So 41-year-old Tom's got a felony charge, but they talked him into a plea deal. Instead of jail time, he had to get rid of all his guns and never buy another one. So November 1991... He decided to respond to Gene Paxton's letter in the mail. It was coming up to the anniversary of Jamie's death. He sat down in a typewriter and he started his reply. Anonymously, he told her, one, he was the killer. Two, an uh, irresistible compulsion. He gave her step-by-step descriptions of what happened that day. He saw Paxton no different than shooting a bottle at the dump. Also... She didn't have a she did have a reason to hate him for killing Jamie. He also said to the police, "Don't feel bad for not solving the case. They can't catch me anyway." He sent it to the newspaper company and they sent it to the authorities. A vulnerable clue, but still they were no closer. Maybe he was right. Maybe they'll never catch up with him. A few months later, March 14th, 1992, he was driving Route 274. On Shock, no, what, Con Shockton County, 64 miles southwest from his hometown. He was passing Willis Creek. It was like a dam. And he spotted 48 year old Claude Hopkins. Claude, you know, he worked night shift at a manufacturing company. And he loved going fishing during the day. So that's what he was doing. He was just having a good time, but he didn't know that Thomas was preying on him. Thomas aimed his gun and he fired, hitting the man. He didn't check to see if he had a pulse. He knew that he was dead. But what he didn't know, it was federal property. So it wasn't the police that was going to be investigating. It was the FBI, and they were going to be on his ass. So the federal agents swarmed the area, and they picked apart the whole entire thing. When they couldn't find evidence, they knew their suspect was careful and well-calculated. Probably wasn't their first murder either. They looked over the recent murder victims, and they even reopened the case about Kevin, the boy who got shot in the head. Each county investigated their own murder, but this is the first time 
that they all tied the murders into each other. The FBI, the FBI, <laughs> the FBI realized they had a serial killer on their hands. So they formed a secret task force with the police, trying to keep it on the down low so they don't spook their killer, but also don't freak out the public. You know, they had a hard challenge. See, snipers are very difficult to catch because they don't leave much evidence behind. And since they are long-range shooting, that means they're nowhere near the crime scene at all. And sometimes they don't even know their victims either. So that's what really makes it hard for them. And they have no beefs, no interactions, nothing. They just shoot them and kill them. Total strangers. So that's what makes it very difficult. But also that's the best way to be a serial killer. I was like, how is he getting away without anybody hearing his gun? But now I'm thinking about it. He did have a silencer. So that makes sense. I wonder if they ever took the silencer from him. So April 5th, 1992, he was driving Route 83 in Belmont County near where he shot Jamie. He noticed 44-year-old Gary Bradley. The man was just fishing. He fired around at Gary, killing him. So eventually the FBI brought in their personal personality profilers from the FBI Science Behavior Facility. They studied each crime carefully, and they even studied the letter that he sent to the newspaper. The experts set up a psychological profile of the killer. Looking for a white male, gun enthusiast, loves the outdoors, the killer likes for a distance, but no confrontation. Barely has any friends and does things in a cowardly fashion. They think that he was fueled by alcohol and he was also an arsonist. His psychological fingerprints were all over the crime scene. He loves to drink, kill animals, and love vandalism. Also set fires. That was almost the exact description of Thomas. But Thomas had no idea this was going on. So on July 21st, he was driving through a state park when he noticed two hunters. Thomas parked on the side of the road. He grabbed his rifle and he walked towards the men. I don't know why he did that. One of the hunters turned around to see Thomas aiming his gun at them. It startled him and he ended up shouting at Thomas. Well, he ran back to his truck and drove away. So I guess the FBI was right about him not being a man that likes confrontation at all. So the hunters reported it to the police and they told the task force. They believe it was their man. Now they have a physical description of Thomas and his truck. So on August 11th, that's my buddy's birthday, the task force held a conference on television across Ohio. They admitted that there was a serial killer on the loose and they also asked for help. They read the profile to the public. It was risky, but it did pay off. A few weeks later, August 26th, Richard... Thomas's old friend from college <laughs> called the task force hotline. He asked to meet with somebody anonymously somewhere secret. Obviously, it's not secret, Richard, if I'm sitting here talking about it right now. So much for being secret. He greeted the agent at a rest stop on Route 77. Wow, so much for being secret there, my friend. So much for being secret. <laughs> He told them about Thomas Dillon. He told them everything he knew about Thomas's past. He also gave a physical description of him and his truck. 
He said he stopped spending time with him in the early 80s, early 80s. But in 1989, they reunited at a gun expo. After that, they had a few drives together. They shot at stop signs and drank like old times. Thomas brought up a topic that he loved. Serial killers. So he asked Richard if he thought that he could ever kill anyone. When he said no, Thomas explained how he'd get away with murder. I, me and my friends have done that. Like I asked my friends, especially my buddy Michael, I was like, if I ever got arrested, what would it be for? And they're all like, oh, it's murder. I was like, you think I'd be a serial killer? They're like, yeah, you would. So I definitely don't think this is a big red flag because I know a lot of people have told me how they would kill and get away with it. But Richard was disturbed, and he was wondering if his friend was capable of something like that. Every human being is capable of murder. So he ended up shaking it off because nothing confirmed his suspicion, but the thought stayed with him. Once he saw the news, it all came together and he picked up the phone. The investigators believed Thomas was the man behind all of this. They just had to prove it. They found out that he called in sick at work two of the days that the murders landed on. Others were on weekends. They found a video of him hanging out around Jamie Paxton's grave. The task force ended up watching his every move. They followed him closely, but at a distance. They couldn't get, they could have gotten him from drinking and driving and vandalizing street signs and disobeying the 99 court order, which was, you know, he wasn't supposed to have guns at all. So they could have pulled him over for drinking and driving, vandalism, and having guns. But, you know, they didn't stop him. They had two close calls, though. Thomas shot at a hunter, but missed. Thomas failed to try to, like, shoot at this jogging woman on the road. He tried to get close to her, but she changed course before Thomas could ever catch up to her. They realized that he was too dangerous. If they waited much longer for hard evidence, it may cost them another life. Bro, you were waiting for him to commit another murder before you arrested him. What the fuck are you talking about? Now y'all having second thoughts? Like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't let that happen. <laughs> so November 27th, the task force dressed in civil civilian clothes and approached Thomas outside a grocery store. They asked if they could speak to him at the station, and he told them politely that he wouldn't talk to them without a lawyer present. He thought he called their bluff, thinking that they had nothing on him. Well, he was wrong. The FBI agents swarmed him, and he was shocked. But he was surprised, but also happy that a tons of agents were laying on him. It was like a movie, and he was the star. They brought him into a holding cell, and they tried to get him to talk. Meanwhile, they got a warrant, and they went through his truck, his house. They even tried finding evidence to link him, but they found nothing. They held another press conference. They asked for all the information any of the public knows about Thomas. Still nothing. They asked again for any information about him in relationship to these murders. The only tip useful was a man who had sold the gun to Thomas a few years earlier. They took the rifle and they examined it. They needed more than the gun. They needed to prove that both of the bullets that were in the two men came from that gun. Thomas picked up all his casings after his murders. So one person said that they saw Thomas shooting in a field, but it was a few years ago. So the agents decided to go out there anyways. They used a metal detector searching for hours. 
They found a few casings where the caller said they saw Thomas shooting the gun. They were in ballistics and the casings were a match to the bullets, not only for his gun, but for the bullets that were in his victims. They could have charged him with these two deaths, but they wanted justice for all of his victims, so they approached him with a pre plea bargain. If he admitted to the other murders, he wouldn't get the death penalty. So June of 1993, he agreed. A call from jail to a local reporter, he went on recording, confessing to all of his murders. He repeatedly said that he was crazy and he wanted to kill. Thomas wanted to be famous, so all this notoriety was feeling his ego. He couldn't stop smirking at the cameras in court. Even when he was sentenced to 165 years in prison with no parole, a reporter interviewed Jean Paxton, which was the mother of Jamie that was sending all the letters out to the newspaper. She called him a coward. The next night, her phone rang, and she answered it. It was Thomas Dillon. He calmly greeted her like he was calling for business. He told her that she hurt his feelings <laughs> by calling him a coward. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> she was stunned. She was so done with his sick, twisted games. She explained to him without raising her voice or getting mad what kind of person her son was. It was all she wanted to do. When she hung up the phone, she felt relief. All those years, she wrote those letters and she finally got to speak to the man that killed her son. Her speech got to Thomas. He said he only felt remorse for Jamie's death because he didn't know how young he was. What? That's the only reason? Not because of, you know, he was a human being and he was innocent and, you know, his mom's spilling her heart out of how great her son was. No, it's all because of his age. What a cold-hearted bastard. Behind bars, he wrote to reporters trying to tell his story. He wanted the spotlight, but as time passed and people moved on, his legacy faded. He didn't become a famous serial killer at all. He just became a trash crew worker at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility. After 18 years in prison, he died. He died in the prison wing in a medical facility. Not really sure how he died. Not really sure. It doesn't really say that I know of. Okay, never mind. He died at the age of 61 after being ill for nearly three weeks due to an unspecified illness. So it doesn't say what he died from. Some type of illness that was with him for three weeks and then it ended up taking him out at the age of 61. So, damn. And that is pretty much the end of Thomas Dillon. That was pretty much a fast story. I'm sorry, I'm very tired and I'm very late posting this. So I stuttered a few times and got things, you know, wrong. But I told y'all I was going to go over those other people that... um you know, listen to the podcast, but I don't know if I'm going to do that since it's so late, you know, and I can't open that, well, let me open windows, yeah, it's not letting me do it while I'm recording, so I'll have to do it another time, thank you all for listening, uh, the next episode I'll give more shout outs to everybody who's been listening to the podcast, I really do appreciate it, wherever you're from, Whatever age, gender, whatever you are, thank you for listening. I know I've been on and off, and it just sucks, man. Because mom ain't doing it no more, and it just 
I loved her having one story, I have one, and then I started adding on doing other podcasts as well. So I have like eight podcasts that I do. My buddy wants to jump on a podcast every night, and I'm like, bro, you're not the one that has to edit. You're not the one that has to go to work and stuff. Like, you're sitting at home doing nothing, bro. Like, you should be putting all the work in. But, you know, I like this podcast, and I'm going to continue with it. Um, You know, shout out to where I got my sources from, the Serial Killer Podcast by Podcast Network. But I love all of you. Stay safe. I'm going to do more research on my next killers and uh, go about it. See y'all next Sunday. TTFN. Ta-ta for now. And watch your back. You never know what's in the dark.